ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so the last thing that we did in the last session a few weeks ago was regarding the topic of ghusl and in particular it was about the females and the hair when it is tied up in knots on the head then does the woman have to open it all up or not and there were some differences regarding if it was the ghusl of janabah compared to if it was any other type of ghusl but today then we move on to the next section here which is still in the chapter of ghusl all of this section we're doing is connected to the rulings of ghusl the hadith that we have here next an aisha radiyallahu anha qalat qala rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam inni la uhillu almasjida lihaidin wala junubin that the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said i do not permit the mosque for a woman on her period or somebody upon the major sexual impurity meaning somebody needing to make the ghusl from janabah i do not make the masjid permissible for them meaning to come into it and neither for a woman on her period So this is a topic that comes up a lot particularly the issue of whether a woman is allowed into the mosque when she is on her monthly cycle so we'll see what the explanation here says When the messenger said inni la uhillu al-masjid ay la aj'aluhu halalan fa huwa haram The meaning of that is that I do not make the mosque halal or permissible for a woman on her period to come in or a person upon major impurity to come in ay inna al-junuba wal ha'idha la yajuzu li ahadihima an yamkutha fi al-masjid wa la an yajlisa fihi illa lidhurura this hadith appears to indicate what ruling when you look at hadith in terms of fiqh then the hadith 
should indicate a hukam. It should indicate a ruling. What is the obvious ruling so far that the hadith indicates? That it is muharram and forbidden and impermissible for a woman on her monthly cycle to come into the mosque or for a person upon major impurity to come into the mosque. That's what the hadith apparently indicates. As-Shaykh Al-Fawzan Hafidhahullah Ta'ala says that the meaning is it is impermissible for those two categories of people to come in and stay or sit in the mosque unless there is some necessity. And note the wording that it is impermissible for them to come and stay and sit in the mosque. Yamkuth wayajlis to stay and sit in the mosque. And the reason why the Shaykh uses that phrase to stay and sit in the mosque is because many of the scholars they say that a woman on her monthly cycle or even somebody upon major impurity is allowed to come into the mosque if their intention is not to stay and sit. Then what would your intention be? To pick up something maybe. Uh-huh. So maybe you need to pick up something. Maybe you left something a couple of days ago. Maybe you left something last night. And now the next day you are one of these two categories of people. You have become on the monthly cycle now for example. But you need to come in just to pick up the keys you left. Or something else. That is okay. The ruling here is connected to coming in and staying and sitting and remaining in the mosque if you are on the monthly cycle or major impurity. We're going to come to the explanation more yet and there are differences of opinion about this. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, لِأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدِ مَوَاضِعْ لِلصَّلَاةِ وَالْعِبَادَةِ وَقَدْ تَقَدَّمَ الْقَوْلُ بِأَنَّهُمَا يُمْنَعَانِ مِنْ مَسِّ الْمُصْحَفِ وَقِرَاءَةِ الْقُرْآنِ وَالطَّوَافِ بِالْبَيْتِ The Shaykh says mosques, their purpose is the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The purpose of the mosque is worship and obedience. To Allah, prayer, and as for the woman on her monthly cycle or the one upon major impurity, they cannot engage in those forms of worship that you would expect in the masjid. Obviously, prayer, they cannot engage in that in their state. And neither can they engage in touching the Mus'haf and even perhaps reciting generally. So their purpose in the mosque is restricted 
from the purposes of the mosque itself. They cannot pray in their state. They cannot pick up the mushaf and recite in their state. And so they are forbidden from entering the mosque because they cannot fulfill the purposes of the mosque in their state. So then why are they going to come in? They are forbidden in that case. وَيَدُلُّ عَلَى مَا ذَكَرْنَا قَوْلُهُ تَعَالَى يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَقْرَبُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَأَنْتُمْ سُكَارًا حَتَّى تَعْلَمُوا مَا تَقُولُونَ وَلَا جُنُوبًا إِلَّا عَابِرِي سَبِيلٍ حَتَّى تَغْتَسِلُوا In Surah An-Nisa it mentions, O oh, you who believe, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu. And remember we've mentioned before, one of the Salaf said, When you hear an ayah in the Quran beginning with, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu. Then do what? Pay attention to it very carefully. When you hear an ayah, Beginning with Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu O you who believe Then pay attention to it very carefully Why? They said because either So either it will be An order that you must fulfill Or it will be a prohibition That you must abstain from it will be one of those and in this ayah what do we have you have exactly that because the ayah says do not approach the mosques whilst you are intoxicated and that is because initially when alcohol was made haram was it made haram instantly the ruling just came, it's haram. Or was it in stages? In stages. So in one of the early stages, alcohol was made haram at the times of the prayer. You could not be intoxicated at the time of the prayer coming to the masjid. Then after that stage by stage until it became haram, absolutely at all times and there are narrations about how they were pouring it out and the streets were flowing with alcohol being poured out when it became haram so here the ayah says do not approach the prayer whilst you are intoxicated until you are aware and comprehend what you are saying but the point here wala junuban and neither a person upon the major impurity and the end of the ayah hatta taghtasilu until you make that ghusl fal ayah tadullu ala man'il ha'id wan nufasa wal junub min al lubthi fil masjid so the ayah indicates it is impermissible to allow those upon the impurity to come in and stay and remain and sit in the mosque. 
and those upon impurity are the major impurity but also the woman on her monthly cycle is deemed to be upon impurity at that time until she finishes and makes the ghusl and becomes pure and the woman on her postpartum bleeding after childbirth is considered to be upon the state of impurity until that bleeding finishes which does not necessarily have to be the full 40 days it could be less than that whenever the bleeding stops as for passing through or just picking something up and getting out again that is not a problem because the ayah makes that exception when it says except for the ones who are passing through you're just picking something up you're just passing in and out you're not staying then that is the exception that is allowed so this indicates a woman on her period can enter the mosque it's not an absolute prohibition she could enter the mosque but as long as she is not going to stay in it she is only passing through it going to pick something up that is what we have learned so far that it is impermissible for her to stay and sit in the mosque but it is allowed for her to pick something up or momentarily come in and leave again that's what we've learned so far and according to this explanation that is all you would learn that is one of the opinions of the scholars one of the main opinions of the scholars that a woman on her monthly cycle is not permitted to stay in the mosque even if it is for a lesson like this or some other activity is going on in the mosque and the woman wants to come and attend then according to this opinion it is impermissible but as you are aware, there is another opinion on this issue mentioned by a Shaykh al-Albani rahimahullah ta'ala and others which is the opposite in essence saying that a woman on her monthly cycle is permitted to enter uh, into the masjid and to uh, 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 remain in the masjid and to sit in the masjid and the scholars who take that opinion one of their evidences is that this hadith that we've just been mentioning is not sahih and so if it is not then they say there is no other authentic narration highlighting that a woman on her monthly cycle cannot stay in the mosque they say give us authentic evidence prohibiting her from doing so and they don't accept this to be a valid authentic evidence so there are opinions on that if you do take the opinion that it is permissible for a woman on her monthly cycle to come and sit in the masjid 
Then of course the scholars they mention that is with the condition that she must ensure that the area is properly covered and therefore there will be no risk of any blood exiting and falling onto the masjid etc. So if that is done then there is an opinion of the scholars that it is permissible for her to enter and stay in the mosque for a lesson for example a lecture going on an event happening then also from the hadith of Aisha radiyallahu anha and this is an interesting point all of these narrations or many of these narrations are from Aisha radiyallahu anha because Aisha radiyallahu anha had access to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam obviously being his wife and so she saw and learned many of these affairs about ghusl and related matters that other companions would not have actually seen or witnessed this was within the home and that's why the scholars they say one of the great wisdoms of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam marrying aisha when she was young that she memorized so much of the sunnah she was considered as one of the scholars of the companions aisha radiyallahu anha as al-imam al-dhahabi said in seer alam al-nubala she is considered as one of the scholars of the companions some of the men used to come to her asking her for fatwas some of the men at that time they used to come to her asking her for fatwas about things she is regarded as one of the knowledgeable of this ummah and from one of the highest narrators of hadith there are only a few of the companions who narrated over a thousand narrations and it is mentioned as Aisha radiallahu anha being from those high narrators of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and that's why when they talk about who is better Khadija radiallahu anha or Aisha radiallahu anha who is better Khadija radiallahu anha, the first wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Aisha radiallahu anha, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. From those two, who is better? Aisha, mashaAllah, everyone. Aisha radiallahu anha. Khadija. Anybody? Anybody have any reasoning? Everybody said Aisha, most people. Why Aisha? Radiallahu anha. What's your reasoning? About her innocence from the accusations. That's a great virtue of Aisha, radiallahu anha, that the declaration of her innocence from the accusations that were being made against her was sent down as revelation. That's a great virtue for her. So Khadija radiallahu anha, she was with the messenger when he became a prophet at the start. 
and she supported him and helped him at the beginning of Islam. That's a great virtue for Khadija radiallahu anha. So because of the great knowledge Aisha radiallahu anha had, because you notice Aisha had many narrations, but you rarely see narrated from Khadija radiallahu anha. So you're saying because of the knowledge, maybe Aisha. The scholars, they do discuss this particular point in their books. Is Aisha radiallahu anha better and superior? Or is it Khadija radiallahu anha? Both of them obviously have their virtues as briefly mentioned there. In a nutshell, uh, Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned reporting from Ibn Taymiyyah, his shaykh, that trying to answer this question whether Khadija radiallahu anha is better or Aisha radiallahu anha is better is trying to compare your apples and pears that they are two different realms two different things altogether they are not comparable you cannot compare them because of the vast differences between them each one of them has her great virtues but they are different virtues altogether so they are not comparable this is what ibn taymiyyah ibn qayyim said like we say these days apples and pears they cannot be compared you cannot get to a an answer that one of them is superior to the other in a nutshell they say the virtues of Khadija radiallahu anha were at the start of Islam whereas the virtues of Aisha radiallahu anha were at the end of Islam at the beginning of Islam it's mentioned in that narration where uh, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam Abbas before he became a Muslim on one occasion he was there at the Kaaba. Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, before he became a Muslim, he was there one day at the Kaaba. And one of his colleagues came to visit from out of town, who was a mushrik also. This was right at the start. And this other individual and Abbas were there near the Kaaba. This narration is mentioned in... Uh, it's uh, 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 quoted by a Sheikh al-Albani in his book of Sirah. The original reference I forgot, but it's quoted by a Sheikh al-Albani in his book of Sirah. So Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, was there, and his colleague, another mushrik, was there. They were there near the Kaaba. Then all of a sudden, it says in this narration, a man walked out. Imagine you're next to the Kaaba, maybe. You know, like where the mosque is now, you're there, and the Kaaba's down there in front of you. And they saw a man walk out and stand in front of the Kaaba. It mentions either Dhuhr time or Asr time, mid morning, afternoon, uh, midday or afternoon. They saw a man come out and stand in front of the Kaaba and start praying. Then they saw almost immediately after that a boy come out and stand next to the messenger and start praying with him 
And then they saw almost immediately after that a woman come out and line up behind them and start praying. Abbas said to this colleague of his, who I believe was out of town or unaware of who they were, Abbas said to him, do you know who they are? The man said no. He said that is Muhammad. The man who came out first, that is Muhammad. And the boy who came out is Ali. Ali ibn Abi Talib. And the woman who came out and lined up behind them is Khadija radiallahu anha. Then Abbas says to his colleague, I do not know on the face of the earth anyone besides these three upon this religion. Meaning this incident occurred right at the start when only those three were Muslim yet. So Khadija radiallahu anha was there from the beginning. And that's why you go to Sahih al-Bukhari right at the beginning in the chapter of Revelation. You have that long hadith about when the messenger used to go to the cave, Ghari Hira, and when the revelation began and he came back and it was Khadija radiallahu anha who consoled him and comforted him. Huh? His first wife and the messenger did not marry any other women whilst he was married to Khadija radiallahu anha. So she has great virtues at the beginning of Islam. And as for Aisha radiallahu anha, she has great virtues at the end of Islam. She was there when the Prophet passed away. He was there in her lap with his head in her lap prior to passing away. She was there and she learnt the sunnah and so much of that sunnah. And so that's why Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Al-Qayyim, they mentioned, you cannot in reality compare them to come to an answer, this one or that one. They have individual virtues and it would be like trying to compare apples and pears as we say. So they are both from the great and virtuous women of Islam. But we digress. Here Aisha radiallahu anha qalat kuntu aghtasilu ana You know they say about a Sheikh Muhammad Aman al-Jami. A Sheikh Muhammad Aman al-Jami rahimahullah ta'ala one of the great scholars. They say about him in fact no a Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, I believe, that when he used to teach his classes, he used to constantly end up digressing. As soon as he read one point, so many benefits about this and about that, and then he would digress and digress and digress until maybe the whole lecture became a digression of all types of knowledge without even getting to the point you were supposed to do. And at one stage, some of the students, they said to him, Shaykh, all of these things that you teach us, it, it goes above our head sometimes. He said, I am going to continue like that because I would rather teach everything that I know than die 
having only taught a percentage of what I know and taking the rest with me. I would rather give it all out, whether you all understand it or not, as long as one or two of you understand it all, then I have passed on everything before I pass away. So here Aisha radiallahu anha qalat, Kuntu aghtasilu ana wa rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam min ina'in wahidin takhtalifu aydina fihi min al-janabah. So this is connected to the rulings of Ghusl. She says that I am the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We would do the ghusl from one vessel of water. Like one large bowl of water. No sinks and running taps. They would have the water in large containers. So in one large container of water, she said myself and the messenger, both of us were making ghusl from that one container of water. And our hands were mixing in there together. The hands of the messenger getting that water, the hands of Aisha getting that water from that one large bucket or container. Their hands were mixing in together getting that water from that one container. The hadith in terms of the hukam again in fiqh, you always try to look for the rulings in the hadith. This hadith as a ruling indicates dalilun ala annahu la ba'sa an yaghtasila rajulu wa mra'atuhu jami'an. That it is no problem that a man and his wife, they do that ghusl simultaneously. They do that ghusl simultaneously. Which would indicate that there would be visual contact between them whilst doing so. And that is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has of course made it allowable for that enjoyment or uh, what is related to that to occur between the husband and the wife. وَفِيهِ إِغْتِسَالُ الرَّجُلِ وَالْمَرْأَ مِنْ إِنَاءٍ وَاحِدٍ وَأَنَّ ذَلِكَ لَا يُؤَثِّرُ فِي الْمَاءِ So two points here. Firstly, that the husband and the wife could make that ghusl simultaneously. And secondly, that they could use the same container of water, the same large bowl or bucket or container of water. Of course, here in the West now, nobody knows that. It is, of course, all of the running water, the flowing water with the showers, etc., but of course in the olden days they would have the large container or the vessel and that is still known of course in many other countries uh, in the world. Also we learn from this narration al-iqtisad fi ma'it tahara to be economical 
with the amount of water that is used for the purification. You remember in the chapter of wudu, we mentioned how much water the Prophet ﷺ would use to make wudu, or as a minimum, what he would use to make wudu when it was one sa'ah. What's a sa'ah? One handful is a sa'ah. Who will be Arabia? Litter? 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 Yeah, we worked that out last time with the hand spans, uh, with the uh, handfuls. The wudu could be made with barely a fraction of this bottle. That's 500 mil. If you tell people these days make wudu with this bottle, they say, where's the other three or four bottles I need? But the messenger would make wudu with a fraction of this bottle to make wudu. And ghusl could be made with that bottle easily. Because remember, ghusl does not necessitate water gushing and flowing all over the body as you do with the showers these days. It only necessitates that water gets all over the body. That you get the water all over the body. Not that you necessarily have to have a flood occurring upon you like the shower. But that the water just gets to every part and you can do that with a bottle. And you can make wudu with a fraction of this bottle. And we've experienced it. When you go to Hajj, when you get to the night of Muzdalifah, first when you're in Mina on the first day, MashaAllah, luxury. Everybody thinks this is so easy, what were they talking about? When you get to Mina on the first day, you have your fridges in the tent, you have the drinks coming around and the coolers and everything, where the white tents are in Mina. Then the next day you go to Arafah, still not too bad, you're in tents, you have the food being served to you, etc., drinks still coming. But then that night, you go to Muzdalifah. And in Muzdalifah, for the most part, there will be no tents or facilities. You will be out in the open, sleeping under the stars. There will be no water available. And the last time, the last time we went, the water ran out in Muzdalifah. And I heard some people, Masakin, coming and asking the group leaders, is there any water, is there any bottles anywhere? And there was nothing, no water left and there is no access there. You have to walk and walk and walk. And so there on the night of Muzdalifah, yes, there are toilet facilities with the queues and everything. But otherwise, you would make wudu with a fraction of this bottle. You would get the water out, not pouring it, doing that. When it stops on your hand, then you've got a bit of water there, use it. Then again, when it just stops on your hand and then use it and make your wudu. But the messenger used to make wudu with a small amount of water and he could make ghusl with a small amount of water. And so it is from the sunnah to be economical with your usage of water when doing purification, not 
opening the tap to the maximum, making wudu splashes and everything going everywhere. But open it a small amount and get that water and make your wudu. Also, as a benefit from this narration, Dalilun Wadihun Ala Tawaluhi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The narration indicates the great humbleness and humility and modesty of the Prophet وسلم, that he would make the ghusl sharing the water with his wife. He would make the ghusl sharing the water with his wife. Shows the modesty and humility and humbleness of the Prophet It is not like in some of the cultures and some of the men they may think that they are uh, uh, some type of superior uh, 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 individual in the home and that their wife cannot share these affairs with them or whatever the affair may be. But rather the messenger, his humbleness and humility even in the ghusl that they were sharing that same water. Then we come to the chapter regarding at tayammum. Any questions so far before we move to the chapter on tayammum? What time is Isha, by the way? Adhan? Okay. So, any questions before we go to Tayammum? The ayah muhtamil. You could you could argue that it's it's not clear. It is not a dalil which is wadih and clear. They could argue that. They could say the Junub here is talking about the Janabah. The sexual impurity may be from the other evidences. So, you, you know, you can have the ihtimal. And so when that ihtimal is there, that possibility is there, they say there is no clear evidence. And without clear evidence, they say you cannot make it haram. Hmm. Wudu, the amount was what? A mud, which is a quarter of a sa'ah. Basically a, a handful. A handful of water, like the bottom of this bottle. A handful of water he could make the wudu with. And four handfuls of water he could make ghusl with. So you put your two hands together, fill it up with water. That amount is enough to make the full wudu with. Fill your hands up four times the amount of water you can get into your hands put together four times. Four handfuls was enough to make the full ghusl. Uh, you're saying that I mentioned that narration with Sheikh Hamad al-Ansari, impossible. Never Sheikh Hamad al-Ansari, but uh, either Sheikh Muhammad al-Man al-Jami or Sheikh uh, Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti. It's one of the two. 
I didn't check, but it's one of the two. I have a feeling it is a Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti because I think it's at the beginning of Al-Adh Al-Namir, in the, the beginning of the introduction of his tafsir. Hmm. But that is only a benefit anyway. Anybody else? So when she is ha'id, yeah, she can do the umrah, but she can't do the tawaf. She can do the umrah, but cannot do the tawaf. Yeah. Uh huh. Tawaf is like salah, you know, is the yeah, yeah. Same. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ha'id, can't, she can't do the umrah, but she, she can't do the tawaf, and she can't pray. Uh huh. That, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, a, a woman who's on her period. Imagine now, for example. It happens often. It happens often. You may have your tickets booked. And nothing you can do about those tickets. You can't change them. You can't move them. They're booked. The amount of financial loss if you try changing them is not possible. Or you have a group that you're booked on with. And it's impossible to change. And it just so happens when you get to that date of travel. Then typical. Your wife is on her monthly cycle just then. So now you're thinking what are we going to do? You're going to land in Jeddah, then you're going to go straight to the uh, haram to do the, the uh, umrah. That's the way the package is, but she happens to have started her monthly cycle that day. So what do you do? There are some options, but for most people traveling on a package where your time is limited, you would most likely, even though there are a couple of options you could extend into and look into, but most likely... You would have to make your intention, the woman would have to make her intention of ihram when you get to just near Jeddah when the miqat is, when you're still in the plane, you would have to make your intention and go into the state of ihram. So now you land in Jeddah, you're inside the miqat now, and you are upon ihram as is your wife or, or that woman, she is upon ihram, she is in the state of ihram even though she's on her period. Then you would go, and she would not be allowed to do the tawaf, but she would be allowed to do the sa'i, and then she would have to wait until the period finishes, remaining upon her state of ihram, and then do her tawaf and complete the umrah. Or just simply wait until it finishes and go do the full Umrah. What if the package says we're only in Mecca for two days? And then we're going. Al-Basira package, mashallah, you know, what if they say to you it's only two days and we're going? And they say, tough luck, then what? So then, uh, uh, very strict the brothers here. They say, no, you cannot leave the group. You're going to Medina next. You're staying with us there. Tough luck. You cannot go back. So now what are you going to do? Now it looks like you have no options left. Looks like you have no options. Are you going to say to the woman, just don't go into ihram. Don't even make the intention then. Then what? You're going to go out all the way there and she's going to come back not having done umrah? Or the alternative, there's only one thing left. 
No, imagine there is nothing available. You're in the most extreme, extreme circumstance. Hmm? The scholars, they say, if you are in an extreme, extreme circumstance, that imagine so extreme that she wasn't on her monthly cycle, but you land in Jeddah and suddenly there, she now starts her monthly cycle. So you didn't even have any preparation prior to that. And then you're told you've only got two days here. No way she's going to be pure in that time. And after that you are told it is impossible for you to come back in this trip. Our flights and the way it works, impossible you cannot come back. Then some of the scholars they say she has come in on the state of ihram. And she must therefore perform her umrah even upon her state. Be upon as much purification as possible, cover up as much as possible, and as an absolute necessity, she can do her umrah in that state. But that is the extreme end of the scale. Before that, you would have all the other options. Nowadays, even from Medina coming back, you don't need the GMC. Nowadays, you have the train, mashallah, comfortable, two hours, so smooth, even the water doesn't shake when you put it on the train. Clean, smooth journey. Tried it once. The bullet train as they call it. Easy now, you can come back from Medina to Mecca like it's nothing. Not like the olden days in the cars and five hours and six hours in the desert and the heat and even the AC, it's still difficult. But now it's easy. No, she cannot. She cannot pray the raka'atayn uh, uh, because they are sunnah anyway. They are sunnah anyway. It is not an obligation or a rukan or a pillar of your umrah to pray the two raka'at khalfa maqami Ibrahim. It's a sunnah anyway. Even if a person didn't do that, your umrah is valid. So she would only do the minimum required of her umrah because of her necessity, not optional extras. All right, let's have a look at the next chapter. We have a bit of time. We'll just start the next chapter, which is Babu Tayammum. We've gone through wudu, we've gone through wusal, but now what if you need to do tayammum, which is the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the method of purification when? When would you need to do tayammum? When water is not available, that is one circumstance. So water is available, but you cannot use it is the other overall circumstance. You can have subcategories in there as to why you cannot use it. It could be because of a medical reason. You're unable to touch water for some medical reason. Uh, it could be due to... Possibly that kind of comes under the medical. If it was extremely cold and freezing and... It was impossible to use the water for the uh, wudu or ghusl because of fear of your health and maybe elderly especially or those kinds of things maybe. But also... That one's a bit more complicated. So we'll leave that one for now because then you have to start judging... When does that situation take effect? 
So you've got a barrel of water and you're in the jungle. Or you've got your bottle of water and you're lost in the jungle. How do you know when you're going to get out of the jungle? You might be rescued tonight. The helicopter finds you. Or it could be a week. So at what point do you decide, I've got to save my water? That's a bit more complicated. But there are some easier ones than that. When you would not be able to use the water even though it's there and available and you have no medical problem. Fear. You're scared of water? Not scared of water, but other fear that prevents you from using the water. They give an example in the books of fiqh that imagine you're outside somewhere and there's a, a, a small uh, lake or pond or watering hole and you see that and you're walking down there to make wudu but then suddenly a pack of lions come there to start drinking and that's the only water you can see anywhere in this jungle you're at this watering hole but the pack of lions have now come and they've started drinking are you just gonna go and say excuse me and start making wudu you are not gonna be able to go until they leave so you're going to have to wait and wait and wait. But what if the prayer time is about to exit? If it's about to exit, you still can't go because of all the lions there. You're going to have to then make tayammum, fear. Or they mention the example of the enemy. Imagine the water is available someplace and the only route to get to that water has your enemies in between. And so you fear you cannot get past them. It could also be because you are physically unable to get to the water. And they mention an example. Imagine you are uh, taken hostage by somebody. Somebody uh, uh, takes you hostage or you are taken by the enemies and they tie you up against a pillar, handcuff you and tie you up on the pillar. And the bottles of water are just there on the other wall. But you're tied up with your hands cuffed and everything on this pillar. Can you get to the bottles even though you can see them? They're 10 meters away. You're stuck. You're tied up. You cannot get to them. So again, you would in your place just make wudu. So tayammum is not just when water is unavailable. That's one of the reasons. No water available anywhere, tayammum. But it could sometimes be water is available. But there are multiple reasons as to why you cannot use that water. The point we always mention, we mentioned it last time as well. What if your taps at home are turned off? The water company sends a letter to your house. On this particular day, there's going to be no water from 9 a.m. till midnight. All the pipes are going to be shut off for work that we are doing. So your whole street, maybe your whole block, the BD, you guys have the areas BD, what's this BD? Seven. So BD seven, all of it, there's a drought for that day. No water in any homes, any tap. All taps are off on BD seven. So if you happen to live in BD7, is it permissible to make tayammum? It is impermissible. Because the fuqaha, they say, 
as a general rule of thumb not that it's going to be applicable every single time but as a general rule of thumb they say you would never need or you would never have a justification to make tayammum living in a city because they say within a city there is always going to be water somewhere a city is not based upon your taps only imagine the whole of Bradford the taps are off for the day doesn't matter all you have to do is go to Tesco and buy a few of these go home and make your wudu you've got water go to your corner shop pick up bottles of water make your wudu water is available everywhere even if the taps are off so in cities they say water is always available here there being sold in water tanks on top of your homes and all types of things water in cities is always available so just because your taps are off and you have no water in your house the whole street the whole area the whole city for that day it still wouldn't be permissible to make tayammum because water is available and accessible around the corner in the shops in the supermarkets in whatever so babu tayammum قال رحمه الله باب التيمم لما فرغ المؤلف رحمه الله من ذكر الحديث الواردة في الوضوء والاغتسال بالماء ناسب أن يذكر بعدها الطهارة بالتراب الذي هو بديل عن الطهارة بالماء So this is the natural progression in the book when he has mentioned wudu and ghusl with water the next logical thing is to speak about how to do purification without water and a sheikh al-fawzan mentions that this purification without water is the substitute for the purification with water but that is a hotly contested topic is tayammum really a substitute for wudu uh, and ghusl with water and that it's going to come up in the chapter meaning imagine at Dhuhr time you're in the jungle it's always jungle make it easy examples and there's no water anywhere and prayer time is about to finish Dhuhr time is about to finish you need to pray can't find water anywhere so you make tayammum and you pray now Asr time comes in and you're still searching, searching, searching before Maghrib comes in, maybe an hour before Maghrib, you find water. You find water. So now in this case, you would have to uh, leave the for a moment. For Asr, you would have to make wudu with the water. Or would you? Because at Dhuhr time, you made your tayammum and you are therefore upon purification now that you have found water has finding what is is finding water a nullifier of purification well that's the topic some scholars will say you gotta make wudu with water because they say the tayammum was only a temporary substitute in the absence of water or in the uh, in the uh, impossibility of usage of water but that when you do find water 
that temporary substitute now finishes and you must make the fresh wudu with water and the example of dhuhr imagine you find you're looking around everywhere you don't find anything you make tayammum then 10 minutes later you're walking around you find water it's still dhuhr time hasn't gone out yet do you have to make wudu with the water and pray it again or can you say well i made the wudu with my tayammum and prayed my dhuhr that counts difference of opinion again because the ones who say wudu with tayammum is only a temporary substitute they will say now you found water and dhuhr time is still in yet so now you must get rid of your temporary substitute you don't need it anymore water is right there make your wudu with the water and pray your dhuhr again so these kinds of topics are what we are going to come across inshallah ta'ala in this next chapter which will begin with the first hadith in the next session insha'Allah ta'ala remember as we said there is a big gap between these sessions you should try your best to make notes try your best you can get this book in English these hadith that we are reading right now all of these are available it's called uh, what do they call it in English? no no the Bulugh uh, al-Maram uh, attainment of the objectives I think yeah or ordinance or something objectives attainment of the objectives attainment of the objectives by Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar get a copy of that get a copy of that whilst we are reading through you can read the hadith as we are reading through them and that is far better when you attend the class it will help you to learn and study far better if you have the hadith in front of you as we are reading it. So get that book. It's probably here in the bookshop. Attainment of the objectives. I remember when we started the th- uh, third year in the University of Medina, a Sheikh Abdullah al-Bukhari, Hafizahullah ta'ala taught us in the Sunan al-Nasai. In the first lesson he walked in, he sat down. This is the first lesson of the year. He says, first thing, no pleasantries and things. First thing he says, he says, somebody get a piece of paper out, or, or did he himself get the piece of paper out? And he said, raise your hands if you have brought the book with you. We were doing Sunan and Nasai. He said, raise your hands if you brought the book with you today. There were only five of us. Alhamdulillah, Harit. Only five of us had the book. Nobody else had brought it. First lesson, everybody's thinking it's going to be introductions and bits and bobs and muqaddimah, whatever. 25 people, 30 people, the rest of them didn't have the book. He got his pen and his paper, started taking all of their names down. The ones who didn't have the books. Your name, your name, your name. He said, all right, next lesson, everybody better have their books. I've got your names here, the ones who didn't have the books. And that's because they used to say, and the scholars, they all say, if you want to be a student, you need your pen and paper. So that book is available. Get a copy of that. It will be useful for you, useful for your children after you, useful for your grandchildren after you. As some of the scholars said, when you buy books, they remain. Even if you don't benefit from them that much, then perhaps, inshallah, your children, your grandchildren will pick up that book and benefit from it in a time to come. 
So we'll conclude upon that for today. Insha'Allah Ta'ala will meet again in approximately a month every four weeks the class to do that next section bi-ibnillahi ta'ala wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.